The Minnesota Court of Appeals is now in session. Judge Loken, Judge Cochran, Judge Gaitas, the Honorable Michelle A. Loken presiding. Thank you and welcome to the Minnesota Court of Appeals this first day of March, 2021. We have one case on the court's calendar this afternoon, an expedited pretrial appeal in State v. Chauvin. Because of the ongoing pandemic and consistent with the Minnesota Supreme Court's order restricting in-court proceedings, the hearing is being held in a Zoom session this afternoon. Our rules of procedure are the same. Each side will have 15 minutes for primary argument and appellant will have an additional five minutes for rebuttal argument. Oral arguments are recorded by this court. The audio recordings of those arguments are generally available within 24 hours on the Court of Appeals webpage at the Judicial Branch's website at mincourts.gov. Minnesota Rule of Civil Appellate Procedure 134.10 prohibits anyone else from making any audio or video recording of an oral argument unless they have received the court's permission at least 24 hours in advance and they have agreed to comply with specific conditions established by the Minnesota Supreme Court. Several media outlets have made advance arrangements to record the arguments in this hearing and to comply with the Supreme Court's conditions. The Court of Appeals rules of decorum provide that any distracting activity will be grounds for removal from the courtroom, or in this case, the Zoom oral argument. Only the judges, arguing attorneys, and the marshal will have access to the cameras and microphones during this remote oral argument. Cameras and microphones will be locked for all observers and the chat function has been disabled. Any attempt to disrupt the oral argument will result in immediate re removal from the Zoom session and you will not be able to rejoin. Before we begin the arguments, we ask the attorneys who will be arguing to consider that the judges on this panel have studied their briefs and are aware of the procedural history that resulted in this expedited pretrial appeal. If we have questions about those facts, we will ask. We have also reviewed the district court's order that is before us for review and see that the district court was very clear in its ruling. It denied the state's motion to reinstate a third degree murder charge based only on its belief that this court's opinion in State v. Knorr was not yet binding precedent and did not consider any other arguments against reinstating the charge. As a rule, this court does not consider arguments that were not considered and decided in the district court. We therefore ask the attorneys to focus their arguments on the sole issue that is before us this afternoon, whether the district court erred in declining to treat this court's presidential opinion in State v. Knorr as binding precedent. We're now ready to hear for counsel for appellant. We'll ask that uh, he introduce himself for the record before getting started. Please note the timing mechanism up in the uh, left corner of the screen. Be mindful of the time. Also, if you would, uh, we'll give you a few minutes to get started with your position. Then we may interrupt for questions. Uh, it is a little bit more difficult in this format to see when a judge has a question, but we'll do our best to get your attention by raising our hand. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Larkin, and may it please the court. My name is Neil Katyal, and I'm here on behalf of the state. The state should win this appeal for two independent reasons. First, stare decisis. There's no full more foundational principle to our law than that decisions of this court must be followed by lower courts. Here, that didn't happen. Instead, the trial judge expressly said that he agreed with the Noor dissent 
and blocked the state from charging third degree murder. What third degree murder is, is an interesting question, but it's besides the point here. You've decided the question in one direction, the trial judge decided it in another. Without action from this court, a landmark criminal case, one of the most important in our nation's history, will take place with a major part of the case, third degree murder, missing, nowhere in it whatsoever. That can't possibly be the law. A trial judge can't have a unilateral veto to block this court's decisions. In making matters worse, that error can never be fixed due to jeopardy. The harm here is asymmetric. If you rule for us, and later the Supreme Court reverses Noor, Mr. Chauvin will have ample opportunity to seek reversal of his conviction on appeal. But if you rule against us, we'll never be able to charge third degree murder, ever. A trial judge shouldn't be able to do that. And second, the trial judge challenged the Noor decision saying he sided with the dissent. And that's just wrong on the merits. The third degree murder statute doesn't require proof that the Defendant's Act was directed at more than one person nor in effect was right. That's why the answer to the sole question, Judge Larkin, that you presented is in the state's favor. Counsel, what's your best argument in terms of authority uh, supporting your proposition that the district court was bound by our decision in State v. Noor because we deemed it precedential, regardless of the fact that future appellate review is possible? I'd start, Your Honor, with the decision you wrote in State versus MLA in 2010, in which the Court of Appeals said, quote, the district court and this court are bound by Supreme Court precedent and the published opinions of the Court of Appeals. And then at pages 20 to 21 of our brief, we go through how this court, the Court of Appeals, has applied that. And most, I'd start with the case of Megger, uh, Judge Larkin, because, you know, that's nowhere found in Mr. Chauvin's brief. And that's, of course, another one where you were on the panel. And in that case, this court rejected exactly Mr. Chauvin's argument about this Collins precedent. Here's what you said. You said prior precedent, quote, remains good law until and unless it is overturned, even though a prior case might not be final, we generally follow a rule of law until the Minnesota Supreme Court announces a different rule. And so, you know, and that's, there's many, many cases like this, you know, Fischel's another one. And so, you know, we think, that this is actually a really settled question. And for the most important of reasons, Mr. Chauvin's argument would be a recipe for chaos. It would mean district courts could ignore precedential decisions based on their preferred readings. And those reasons I think are at their height when we're talking about a district court trying to reverse a higher court precedent. I mean, whatever Collins may say in that one sentence of dicta, it doesn't give a license to district courts to you know, second guess decisions of this court. So, Mr. Katyal, I was going to ask your view on the Collins case, and I think you just slipped it into your last sentence. What are we to make of our decision in Collins? And is it, as you just noted, uh, merely dicta in the court's opinion when we indicated that a case is not uh, final until judgment is entered? 
Yeah, thank you, Judge Gaitis. That's exactly our position. I mean, Collins, first of all, arose in a totally different context. In that case, the Minnesota Supreme Court had already reversed the published opinion on other grounds. And then this court said, because review was granted and the decision wasn't affirmed, it was a very different thing. Of course, here, nor hasn't been granted, the decision hasn't been reversed or anything like that. Now, it is true, there is that one line in dicta that uh, is that I think gives Mr. Chauvin some force. Of course, that's been rejected in cases like Meager and the like. And, you know, it's, it's dicta, the question wasn't before the court, there was no adversarial briefing on it whatsoever. And even if you read that for all of its worth, Judge Gaitis, it would only mean that a court of appeals could second guess another court of appeals decision. It doesn't say anything about the district court. And I think the most telling fact I'll leave you with is this. I've now spent the weekend reading all of the cases Mr. Chauvin has cited. He doesn't cite a single case ever in Minnesota history in which a district court did what the trial judge did here. Literally, there are thousands and thousands of district court cases, both before and after Collins, no court he has provided cited you know did anything like this and in my own research we are only able to find one case in which a district court ever even cited Collins and that was for a totally different proposition in the Ersfeld case that's it so this is a really radical proposition of law that Mr. Chauvin is defending here and I think it have very serious equality problems because the whole point of stare decisis is to make sure like litigants get treated alike. Katyal, uh, following up on the discussion that we've been having, are you aware of any jurisdiction that has adopted the approach that the district court adopted and that respondent is advocating here in terms of um, determining when a precedential opinion of an appellate court becomes binding on a district court? No, nowhere. I mean, in our brief talked about, you know, we were able to easily find cases from the first and sixth circuits that, uh, of the federal courts that reject this, but it's so novel that, you know, it's not even as if there's any published decisions on this, because I think it's always undertaken the whole point of stare decisis, particularly when you're dealing with vertical stare decisis, when you're dealing with lower courts, as opposed to peer courts of appeals, is that they have to follow it. Otherwise, it's a recipe for anarchy. And I think the problem with Mr. Chauvin's argument is it conflates finality with stare decisis. A final judgment binds parties to a case, you know, because you don't want litigants to be suing ad nauseum. But stare decisis is about something different. It's about fairness in about of the non-parties, litigants in different cases. And every one of the cases he cites is about finality. We're not contesting that the judgment in Noor is not final. What we're just saying is a district court for the most important of stare decisis reasons has to follow it. And uh, you know, that's why I think, you know, cases like Fischel, which even he cites, reject entirely his argument. I mean, you know, Jezarkin, you're also on that case too, in, in Fischel. And what that case says at page two is, quote, Hoyt does not state that a decision is not precedential authority until the Supreme Court affirms or reverses it. Rather, it says an original Court of Appeals decision becomes final by virtue of a denial of a petition for further review. And that's our essential point. There's a difference between finality and stare decisis. There isn't a court that he's cited, that a court decision that allows a district court to say, no, I don't have to follow this stare decisis thing. 
if there are no other questions on question one, uh, you know whether or not a district court can uh, can uh, can is can second guess the decision of this court. There is a second independent ground, which if we won that, we would also win uh, the merits of this appeal. And that is that Noor is correctly decided. Um, and there, Judge Larkin, you know, your opinion in Noor, I think basically goes down to explaining, I think the fundamental key point, the problem that Mr. Chauvin has, which is that all these cases that are being cited both in Noor and by Mr. Chauvin, like Zumberge, are cases in which the defendant acted with intent to kill. And so the court says, rightly, that's not third degree murder, because third degree murder has not the intent to kill. And we agree with that entirely. You know, we're not charging Mr. Chauvin with intentional murder. All of these cases are beside the point. The only principle he has left is this idea that you have to endanger more than one person. That's a purely legal decision, Judge Larkin, as you were saying at the outset. Indeed, you know, all of uh, ju the ju trial judge's decisions in this case were purely legal decisions. There's no deference given. It's a de novo review, 100%. And, judge, uh, and, and the trial judge was very clear. He said, I'm making the decision on only one basis. If nor is binding and correctly decided, I have to apply it. This is what he says at page three. And I have to grant the state's motion to allow the amended charge of third degree murder. And that's what we're asking this court to do. Uh, grant our motion. And you know there are no other issues. Mr. Chauvin had filed a brief in district court. He only raised these legal issues. He didn't raise any arguments about deference uh, to uh, or fact finding or prejudice to the defendants, even though our brief had two pages explaining he wasn't prejudiced. So as this case comes to the court, it's just one legal issue and you yourself should reinstate the charge of third degree murder against Officer Chauvin. Council, my recollection is that the district court was very specific in saying it was not going to address any other arguments that might be raised by a defendant in opposition to reinstatement of the charge. So I, I don't know if those such arguments are properly before the court. So Judge Larkin, we're, we absolutely agree that there isn't anything before the court, uh, either this court or frankly, the one below, because that the language you're reading, I believe comes from footnote one at page three. And in the text of that, uh, the judge explains that uh, he says, quote, the state is correct that if the court of appeals nor opinion is precedential, this court is now duty bound to follow it and grant the state's motions to reinstate the murder in the three, third degree charge in state versus Chauvin. And, and that's because there were only legal arguments Mr. Chauvin made, the arguments we've been discussing today. So uh, if you agree with us on either of our two rationales, I think that means that the third degree murder charge would be accepted. Now the footnote in there talks about the other three defendants who hadn't actually filed their brief at the time this opinion was written. And so the footnote I think preserves the, you know, arguably those three defendants to write to make other arguments, deferential arguments, factual arguments, you know, what have you. Um, but, but for Mr. Chauvin, I think the record is what they filed in the district court uh, and the, the fact that the trial judge accepted it. Happy to answer any other questions or I could rest on our briefs except for our rebuttal, of course. I don't see any other questions, so we'll now hear 
from counsel for respondent. Would you introduce yourself for the record before starting your argument, please? Good afternoon, your honors. Eric Nelson appearing on behalf of uh, the respondent in this matter, Derek Chauvin. Your honor, limiting uh, arguments to uh, the issue as, as uh, outlined by the court, Judge Cahill, the, the issue here is whether Judge Cahill clearly and unequivocally abused his discretion in denying the state's motion to reinstate. Relying on very clear precedent from this court in the Collins decision, a, uh, the, the court found specifically that the Court of Appeals opinion in Noor had not yet reached its precedential status. Despite the fact that the court uh, released it as a published opinion and labeled it as a precedential opinion. So um, Mr. Nelson, um, you mentioned Collins. Are you hanging your hat entirely on the Collins decision here in, in support of your argument? Well, it's not just the Collins decision, uh, Judge Gaitis. If you look at the principle that, that Collins stands for, that is a principle that predates Collins and Collins simply adopts it in the context of a criminal case. Uh, and then this court has repeatedly cited that principle in Collins um, as, uh, as binding precedent. Um, at page 15 of our brief in footnote two, we cite several examples where the Court of Appeals has specifically found that a Court of Appeals opinion is not, uh, is not effective until the deadline for granting review has expired. Are any of those published cases, Mr. Nelson? They're all uh, unpublished cases, non -presidential. And unpublished cases are non-precedential. We agree on that, correct? Agreed, Your Honor. And when you say that the Collins decision uh, merely articulated a principle that was already in existence, uh, what was the precursor to Collins? In other words, what uh, binding authority was Collins relying on when the court said, uh, this court's decisions do not have precedential effect until the deadline for granting review has expired. The Collins, uh, the Collins opinion outlines the Hoyt Company versus Bloomington Commerce and Trade uh, Center Associates found at 418 Northwest 2D, Minnesota, 1988. And were the uh, circumstances in Hoyt similar to the circumstances here? That is a case in which a district court judge refused to apply a precedential opinion uh, because the time for seeking review in the Court of Appeals had, or the Supreme Court had not expired? No, I don't believe that there is a, any such circumstance that I'm aware of. Okay. Were those the circumstances in Collins? Uh, no, Your Honor. Well, then doesn't the statement in Collins then constitute dictum, which is not binding? I, I, I would disagree with that, Your Honor, simply because other courts, whether it be published or unpublished, um, have relied on the courts of appeal, have relied on that principle. Okay, well, I think we've established that to the extent this court has applied the rule or the statement from Collins, and I'm only aware of one unpublished case in which this court has done that, it's an unpublished case. So that's it's of no precedential force. And we have a whole lot of cases, if we're going to look at unpublished cases, where we consistently say Collins is dicta, we follow our published cases, we're bound to follow our published cases, the district court is bound to follow our published cases until such time as the Supreme Court reverses them. I understand I mean, I agree that if we're going to look at unpublished cases, 
the vast majority of those cases treat uh, precedential or published decisions of this court as binding precedent from the time they're issued. I'm sorry, Your Honor, there was a distraction. I, I didn't hear that question. I said, would you agree that to the extent we would look to unpublished decisions as persuasive authority, since they're not precedential, the vast majority of those decisions uh, refuse to give precedential effect to Collins and instead conclude that district court and this court must follow its precedential and published opinions immediately upon filing. In other words, the availability of Supreme Court review does not diminish their uh, precedential authority. I would agree that the majority of the unpublished opinions do stand for that proposition. Yes, Your Honor. Also, could you address for me um, whether, if at all, the rules of uh, civil appellate procedure uh, support your argument? The, Your Honor, I would suggest that the rules of, some, of civil appellate procedure do support the argument. And I think that that's, that's where... Well, I think that that's ultimately where the state overstates the chaos that could ensue uh, in such a circumstance. As we're all very much aware, um, the the court of excuse me, the rules of civil appellate procedure provide a 30-day window for a person to appeal from a court of appeals decision, and the Supreme Court then has 60 days to decide whether or not it's going to hear it. So. And we all are also very much aware of the fact that the vast majority of cases uh, do not make it to the Supreme Court, whether it's because an individual does not petition for further review or whether it's by virtue of a denial of certiorari by the Supreme Court. So the, the chaos, I would number one, su su suggest that the Court of Appeals, excuse me, the rules of civil appellate procedure do specifically support this proposition because it provides a very tight time frame. Second, Your Honor, um, because of the um, limited nature in both in terms of the time to petition for additional review, as well as the limited amount of time the Supreme Court has to decide to accept certiorari, uh, uh, undermines this, this notion that stare decisis will uh, essentially become chaos uh, if, uh, if um, if we were, you were to adopt this position. Counsel, let's step away from chaos for a moment and ju just look at the plain language of the rules. I mean, there are several rules that apply to the procedure in this case. Um, we first have 136.01, which says when a panel of the Court of Appeals decides the merits of an appeal, it also determines whether the opinion should be precedential, non-precedential or an order opinion. And then the rule goes on to state, non-precedential opinions and order opinions are not binding authority. But the rule does not say anything indicating the Supreme Court, which promulgates these rules, intended to limit the precedential effect of a precedential opinion of this court. In other words, we have, we have that rule. We have uh, the rule on um, asking for review by the Supreme Court and stating that until such time as uh, the time to obtain review has expired, uh, the judgment of this court will be stayed. Um, we have uh, the rules at 117, which talk about granting uh, petitions for review by the Supreme Court. And in none of those rules does the Supreme Court say 
a precedential decision of the Court of Appeals is of no effect until we decide whether to grant review. A precedential decision of the Court of Appeals is of no effect until the time for seeking review has expired. I mean, indeed, when the Supreme Court does grant review of our cases, it typically does not vacate our decision or issue any order limiting our decision. So I mean, all, all of these rules and the lack of any statement that a precedential opinion is anything but immediately effective in terms of precedential authority are causing me to question your assertion that the rules support um, ignoring precedential decisions of this court until such time as uh, the time to seek review has expired, the Supreme Court denies review, or the Supreme Court takes review and issues a different decision. Could you tell me why that view of the rules is incorrect? Because I think it also, uh, the inverse of the court's position is also true. Insofar as number one, these rules do not specifically state that the press, the Court of Appeals opinion is in fact precedential and binding. The Collins decision, which is a published opinion, even if it's only in dicta, also stands for the proposition that it does not have precedential value until the deadline for granting review has expired. So, so for Counsel, example- could you, could you tell me that, so I better understand your argument. What's your understanding of, of what dictum is? Uh, dictum is, is, is language from a court that is not precedential in its nature in the sense of, in the sense of uh, its kind of off the cuff remarks. So, so you're pinning your argument that the district court is free to ignore a decision that the intermediate appellate court of Minnesota has designated as precedential, precedential meaning it is authoritative in other similar cases with similar facts, similar, similar issues on a single off the cuff statement in a case that you concede is, is not precedential. Do you, do you see the problem with that argument? Well, I certainly understand the court's position. The, the issue though, that's where it gets into when you look at MLA, which basically tells the court, uh, tells the district courts that it is obligated to follow the uh, precedential opinions and, and that you has to be read in context of the rules of civil appellate procedure, as well as, as, well as the context of the Collins decision. Um, so yes, the court is the district court is obligated to follow precedential opinions. The Mr. question Nelson, is, Mr. Katyal has suggested that your argument is essentially conflating judgment as to the parties and stare decisis, which are two very different concepts. I'm wondering if you could address that argument. Certainly. I, I think that um, in the context of the, this particular case, in the circumstances, the procedural posture of this particular case, what we are talking about is the finality uh, for um, how this would apply in the, the context of this case procedurally. So the, the concept of stare decisis is not uh, abandoned. It is not reduced to chaos simply because the district court found that the Noor decision had not yet reached precedential status. Counsel, by Mr. finality, do you 
you mean uh, the case has been reduced to judgment? Are you equating finality with entry of judgment? I'm, I'm equating finality with multiple layers, Your Honor. One is obviously entry of judgment. That entry, that judgment has been entered. One is the um, the rule of when does it gain its precedential status? Well, when you say that judgment has been entered, has judgment been entered in nor? I mean, according to the rules, judgment is to be state. Judgment can't be issued less than thirty days. Uh, right. From so the date the, of the opinion. I guess what I'm implying, Your Honor, is is that the Court of Appeals. Released its opinion in Noor. It is stayed for 30 days, um, and and in that context, if the order is stayed, it's not final. So you're equating then, as I understand it, finality with entry of judgment. Until judgment is entered in this court's decision in Noor, it's your position that the decision isn't final and it's not precedential. Yes. yes. Mr. Nelson, isn't that position inconsistent with the principles underlying stare decisis in terms of predictability, equal treatment under the law, and stability? Is it inconsistent or consistent? I'm sorry. Inconsistent. It, it seems like your position allows for unequal treatment under the law because uh, if, our, if the Court of Appeals precedential decisions are not binding on a district court when issued and instead there's they're not binding until some later time which you argue is as I understand it um, not until the the period for a petition for review has expired and no petition has been filed or the Supreme Court has denied a petition for review is that that your position basically essentially your honor yes because because I think where stare decisis is satisfied uh, by the rules and by these timeframes is because the time is limited. It is a limited amount of time. It's not years and years and years. It's no more than 90 days and often less than 30. Right, but counsel, well, so you're, um, you're only looking at the front end. I, I think we all know as practitioners that if the Supreme Court does accept review in a criminal case, it's often a year or more before we get a decision. So Understood. although the rules limit the time in which the parties can seek review by the Supreme Court, if your position is the decision of this court is not final until an appellate judgment is issued and the Supreme Court does take review, I mean, that means people could be waiting, you know, 12 plus months for final judgment and this court's precedential opinion in the meantime would have no effect according to your position. Am my I understanding time is, your argument? My time is about to expire. May I answer that question, Your Honor? Okay. Um, your Honor, I think that that's the rarity as opposed, that's the exception to the rule rather than the general rule. I would generally agree that yes, you could be potentially faced with a situation where a court of appeals issues a precedential opinion and that opinion does not take effect for 12 plus months as the court points out. But it also ignores when the state says that there is no harm to a defendant, especially in the context of a criminal case. So you look at you look at the context of a criminal case. Yes, my client would have the right to appeal that decision if nor were to be overturned, but he would have to do it 
from the confines of a prison cell. And that is volative of due process. Counsel, in terms of stare decisis, and uh, I think the point Judge Cochran was trying to make, if we have a situation where the Court of Appeals issues a published decision or a precedential decision, and uh, were to accept your position that it's not binding precedent until such time as the uh, Supreme Court reviews it and issues a decision, and that might take a year or more, then do we not have a situation where within that year, any other defendant who has the same issue um, may or may not get treated similarly? One district court may say it's going to follow the majority in NOR, another district court may say it's going to follow um, the dissent in NOR, and we won't have similar treatment of similarly situated uh, defendants while we wait for a decision from the Supreme Court. Isn't that the sort of chaos we, we seek to avoid when we adhere to the principle that right or wrong, this is the decision of the appellate court, we're going to follow it until a higher court says it's wrong? So I think that there would be two brief responses. First, Your Honor, um, we have to revert back to MLA, which requires the district courts to follow cases that are factually similar. Second, Your Honor, uh, in a case of a homicide, the state of Minnesota has uh, no statute of limitations holding them. So if there's some uncertainty uh, in the context of uh, the law, the court can, or excuse me, the state can exercise its prosecutorial prosecutorial discretion much differently. So you're, so what you would envision then is a situation where, well, if the law is not crystal clear on this issue of third degree murder, if there is a case of a homicide and it may or may not constitute third degree murder, depending on which opinion from nor you accept, uh, the state should simply not charge that case until the issue is resolved. I think Instead that would be- Instead of following the majority opinion from the intermediate appellate court. I do think that that would be an extremely rare hypothetical scenario, but would technically be possible. Judge Larkin, if I may, can I ask one additional of question? Of course. Uh, Mr. Nelson, are you aware of any jurisdiction, any other, any jurisdiction that has adopted the approach that the district court took and that you're advocating for here today in terms of when a precedential opinion of an appellate court becomes binding on a district court? I am not, Your Honor. If there are no other questions, we'll hear rebuttal argument from appellant's counsel. Thank you. As Judge Larkin put it, Mr. Nelson's argument is that a district court can ignore precedential opinions of this court because of a single lines in Collins. That's a radical theory. And it's notable that in the tens of thousands of district court cases decided in Minnesota, he can't cite a single example where that's actually happened, not one. There is no case in civil or criminal law, none. And Collins is dicta at best, as Judge Larkin noted. And it's the, the argument that you just heard today has been expressly rejected in many cases of this court, especially Meager, um, which rejected Collins, this Collins argument specifically. My friend points you to page 15 of his brief, and all of those cases are cases about finality. We're not questioning that. He doesn't have a case about stare decisis. And Judge Gaetas, he said that there was a principle behind these cases. 
But even that principle is just about ad nauseum litigation between the same parties and the benefits of finality. That's not something that we're questioning. Mr. Nelson says that the vast majority of cases don't make it to the Supreme Court. That point cuts entirely the other way. It's, entire, it's hugely wasteful to have district courts second guessing decisions of this court. It'll undermine respect for the court and the fabric of the stability of the law. And that's why to pick up on Judge Larkin, rule 136.01 gives the choice to this court to decide whether an opinion is precedential or not. That rule doesn't say precedential asterisk or something like that and saying it's only precedential after 30 days. It simply says precedential. And the idea that my friend's rule could be the law in a criminal case is deeply dangerous. As I said, it has asymmetric harms to us. That's one of our most important points because this is our only chance today to reinstate that third degree murder charge. We can't fix it later on appeal. And it's astonishing to me what my friend just said to, to Judge Larkin in response. He said, well, the remedy for the state is in other cases, just not to charge homicides for a year or longer. Imagine the harm to the public, not just obviously in a case like this with the gravity it has, but in any case to say prosecutors have to wait a year or more to bring homicide charges, that can't possibly be the law. And indeed, one reason why stare decisis binds trial courts is because of equality. And that's something that I think all three of you were getting at in your questions to my friend. Like cases can't be treated unlike, but the district court's decision opens that door in every case. A litigant, whether the prosecution or defense would be at the mercy of a judge who disagreed with any court of appeals decision, even though another litigant with the exact same facts might get a different judge who doesn't disagree. And that kind of equality problem is anything but hypothetical. In this very case, there are three other officers who will be charged much later, very possibly when Noor is over and left intact. That would mean third degree murder charges could be brought against those three officers just because of timing. Indeed, imagine that the trial were taking place today of those three officers just in a separate courtroom before a different judge. They could face different charges today just because they happened to draw a trial judge who didn't want to question nor inside with the dissent. Everything about our legal system rebels against that notion, Judge Cochran, in Minnesota, in any jurisdiction with which we're familiar. The district court's decision is profoundly wrong and the state is entitled to rely on the court's, this court's decision about third degree murder. In the end, Mr. Nelson can't get away from the fact that a month ago today, this court held third degree murder charges are available and the state has to be able to rely on decisions of this court. I see no other questions. Um, in conclusion, the court would like to thank the attorneys for complying with the court's expedited briefing and oral argument schedule. We in turn will issue an expedited decision as soon as possible, appreciating that the trial in this matter is supposed to um, start uh, one week from today. Thank you for your arguments, counsel.